0: Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel and this week we're really lucky to have Arlene Bailey with us, who is a country music phenomenon. Um, I've been listening to her album in the last few days since I've been in contact with her and it's really, really good. So she's a singer in her band Bailey. They've been together for about three years and she's also here to talk about her diagnosis of bipolar, which was only a few years ago. So let's uh, say hello to Arlene and let's have a chat. How are you, Arlene? (laughs) I'm good, Daniel. How are you? Good. And uh, I was saying to you off off air that uh, when I read your profile and it said you were Nashville, Tennessee, I thought, wow, this lady's going to come on with a big old Nashville voice and talk like that. And then you surprise me with such an Irish accent. That's it. I sound like uh, Bridie from <laughs> down the
1: country. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've recorded in in Nashville, and I spent a lot of time in the states. I lived in New York for a while, um, but no, Irish through and through. The only, um, as I said to you before, the only American part of me is the flag that I have tattooed on my extremely lower back. Okay,
0: <laughs> that's a whole other story. <laughs> So can we go back to your childhood then and just tell me sort of, you know, your upbringing and what sort of got you into music?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from Salins in County Kildare. Um, My mum and dad uh, reared myself, my older sister, younger sister and kid brother. Um, we're a very close family. Like laughter was just such a big thing, laughter, music, entertainment, yep. having the crack was always and always has been a thing in our house. Um. So, yeah, I had a great childhood. I left home, though, at 17. I just turned 17 and I joined a band and Upton moved to the UK and uh, spent a very long story short. I suppose I spent the next 14 years touring the world wow. with different bands and as a solo artist and stuff. But I had a great childhood. I have nothing... Do you know when I think back of any to any problems that I have now or any issues i've ha- I've had, they have never stemmed from my childhood. You know right. I remember even speaking to counselors and they would say, "You know, how was your relationship with your mom and dad?" Well, it was perfect. Right. You know, my dad passed away a couple of years ago, but I right up to that point, you know we're a very close knit family, so my point is, Daniel, I can't blame them for my lunacy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can maybe, I suppose, because they are, um, my, my younger brother, Eric is an actor and I like to refer to him as an over actor. He's, he's all jazz hands and, you know, he's a total comedic genius, but, yeah. uh, yeah, there's a lot of, as I said, there's been a lot of fun in our family home. And again, music wise, my dad always sang, never professionally, but say at family events, him and his brothers would get up to sing at any, any occasion, um, and then from my mother's side, we would have been uh, more kind of steered towards playing instruments like the accordion and the guitar and stuff like that. And Irish dancing was a huge thing in the family. But uh, yeah, from the age of four, I guess I was I was inspired to <laughs> to 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 sing. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just the fact that my mom and dad heard that I I was able to sing, and they pushed. Then they would give me they'd give me tapes. I was going to say CDs, but like going back to the dark ages there. <laughs> Um, yeah so they give me tapes and certain artists like uh, Crystal Gale and George Jones people like that they would inspire me to listen to and I would learn stuff and then I guess put it out there I'd have to do some sort of performance then (laughs) as a follow-up but I I used to go to uh, things called crazy nights that my dad organized they were like Nights out in in clubs, basically, where bands would play and people would get up to sing. And as a four-year-old, I used to get up and sing with bands. Wow. So, yeah, um, when kids shouldn't have been in pubs, I I was there. And it's funny because we go sometimes on a Saturday evening straight from mass. So it would be like (laughs) 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 from the church to the pub, you know, real Irish thing to do. But yeah, so I'd get up and sing and I was terrified. I, I knew I loved to sing, but I didn't like getting up on stage. Once I got up there, I didn't want to get back down again. So uh, it's something I got used to. And everywhere we'd go, like my dad, even if we were on holidays, if we were going somewhere and there was a band playing, he'd be up like a shot. Uh, my yeah. daughter can sing. does not matter you know, who they were or how old I was. It was happening as far as he was concerned. So I suppose in one way, I, when I say I felt pushed into it, that, that's too strong a way of describing it. But I... Encouraged. I guess I wouldn't... Yes, encouraged and a little bit more you know if it wasn't for that sort of push from him and from my mom I don't think I'd be in the business now right I don't think I would I don't think I probably would have taken a back seat and said "Mm," you know I wouldn't have I wouldn't wouldn't have been as ballsy I think you know right
0: right right yeah so uh having them as your parents really sort of prepared you to get in there and just blast your way into the music scene
1: I guess so. Yeah. Um, and then when the time came to join a band, I just, I didn't look back. I just said, you know, feck this, I'm out of here. I know what I want to do. I was very much, I was kind of quiet about my, my love for music when I hit secondary school. I didn't, I didn't really, um, I didn't sing a whole pile. I know I went and I, I did little bits and pieces on the side, but in school, I never, I never pushed it because I was a different kind of singer. And I used to notice that it was always the, the girls with the serious high range that would get the parts and the musicals yeah, yeah. and stuff like that might have said, "Ah, oh, here, do you know what? <laughs> this isn't for me." So I, I used to do background bits and pieces and um, whatever. No, I didn't really push myself then. Um when I got an opportunity, it was my granny that saw an advert that, that yeah. were looking. This band was looking for somebody to join as lead singer. As I said, long story short, I hit the road. I didn't look back. I I left my mum and dad crying at the gate and headed off for nine weeks. And from there, as I said, it became it became the guts of 14 years. Touring the world, coming home for maybe five days at a time. Um like it was an insane lifestyle. It was it's funny, I had this moment earlier. I I noticed on Facebook that this girl that used to sing, she used to come to a gig that I played in uh in England. Yeah. She used to get up and sing with the band. And I remember thinking, God, she's such a child and she reminds me of me years ago. And I see on Facebook today, she turns 40 and I'm 43. So if I was looking at her then going, oh, my God, you're only a child. I was a child too. I just thought I was. Yeah, yeah. I was in a different headspace. I was out there in the big bad world. And, um, you know, I sure I thought I knew it all. I, did, I, I didn't have a clue, really, but I just went with it.
0: <laughs> and so um, your new album that you've got at the moment, is it just called Bailey?
1: Yeah, we didn't we didn't stick a title on it. We just. Um, it's my third album. And I just said, you know what, let's keep it simple. Just stick the band name on it. And and that's it. And let it speak for itself.
0: <laughs> well, look, I, as I said to you, I was listening to it before we started the interview. Yeah, I really love everything I'm not and love your cover of I Am Woman who, who uh, I had her in my head who sang it. Now I can't think of it. Um, really- yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, Helen Reddy. But your yeah, version, um, I think, is a lot more raw, and I don't know. I just like the music behind it. It's like you've given it a rebirth, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Some people cover things, and, and, and it's just it's like, oh, look, they've just done exactly the same thing, but yours has got a completely different sound to it. Yeah,
1: thank you. No, we um, we took what was a pretty laid back song, and I gave it to the guys in Nashville, and like. I, I worked with these amazing musicians out there and they just did their own thing their own spin on it and all I wanted from it was it to be a lot more punchy in your face and a bit rockier than yeah. the original and I think we managed to achieve oh, that the other definitely. song the other song you mentioned there Everything I'm Not was written by um, again another Nashville based musician Donnie Skaggs And it's really, it's one of those independent woman kind of songs. It's like, if you listen to the lyrics, I'm not your maid, I'm not your mama. It's like, I don't have time to be messing around with some bloke who won't clean up after himself. You know, (laughs) so I think that'll speak to a lot of women.
0: Oh, it will do. I mean, I did have um, the vision of uh, The Handmaid's Tale going through my head when I was listening. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm joking. No, it wasn't as bad. (laughs) No, but yeah, it is. It's good because if women listen to that, it will give them like the get up and go. And yeah, I am strong. I can be independent, which is a really good thing because independence.
1: Yeah, I I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And like, I'm not going to sit here and start, you know, yes, of course, I'm always going to fly the flag for women. But, you know, we've kind of got a raw deal at times. So
0: definitely every now
1: and again, we need to remind the men that we're here (laughs) We have standards and look. All the rest, I mean, you know. I work
0: in an industry where I feel that females and males are pretty much equal uh, in disability and mental health. But I can see there are so many disparities in other workplaces. And I've never really thought, oh, well, I'm better than you because I'm a male, or, you know. But that sort of song really does uh, give women something to go with and go, wow, yeah, you know, this is really strong. This is who I am. I am strong. I am. Yeah able to do all these things.
1: Without being kind of too aggressive or in your face, because it is tongue in cheek and it's country and any typical country song is, uh, it tends to be a little, my dog ran away with my neighbor's (laughs) cat or whatever, you know, there's always some sort of, (laughs) like if you watch any of the American country videos, they're like little movies and they all tell funny stories. You know, they're, that's, that's kind of the gist with, with that style of country. I think that it is, it's tongue in cheek, but it's, a bit of a sharp reminder as well that we're not putting up with any crap.
0: So what drew you towards country music?
1: (laughs) Again, the influence of my mum and dad. Then again, daddy wouldn't have sang country music, but my mother loved the old kind of, uh, the old American style country acts. Um, And there would have been a lot of that stuff played in the house. And then my aunt was really big, is really big into country music as well. So, she had a huge collection of music. And again, it would be, have a listen to this. Maybe you'd like to sing that. And yeah. yeah, that's, I guess, where it came from. And I've been twanging ever since, you know, that, as you said, <laughs> that, that kind of tiny American accent that I'm sure grates plenty of people. But that's that's how I, I sing naturally. That's just what comes to me. And I think when I do that style of music, you can't sing it with an Irish accent, you know? Now,
0: look, it, it's, it's the same with some other singers, isn't it? I mean, if, if they were to sing it, Uh, like put on an American accent or an English accent, it would just be like, oh, that doesn't. I mean, I guess if, well, if someone did it as a cover and they didn't sound the same, but you sound like you're American and it sounds really good, raw country, you know, it's because I don't like a lot of country music. And when you first contacted me, I was thinking, oh, no, not a country music star. And then I listened to your music (laughs) and I went, actually, I don't mind this. This is actually really good.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, there's different styles, isn't there? There's a few questionable sort of and I don't mean to sound like I'm not supporting other artists. I am, of course, but they're just, there's a certain type of country out there that I couldn't listen to. I, you know, I, 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 won't. Well, you were saying like, like,
0: um, uh, you know, the one with the dog chases the cat or something like that, which is a funny sort of thing. And when you were saying it, I was, I could think of country music songs that were similar to that, but, um, I'm thinking like, you know, things where they say, oh, we haven't had rain for so long and it's been a really bad year. And, you know, I mean, that's okay, but it's just not my cup of tea. It needs to have a bit of Mm. oomph in it. And yours does.
1: I put in that that rocky sort of influence as well. So it was a little bit more mainstream.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, look, uh, you said before we came on that you found out that you had bipolar. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to the conclusion or who you went to see to get Uh, a diagnosis? So
1: I was suffering from depression from probably about the age of 15. Right. um, On and off. And it was addressed at times, then other times it wasn't. Um, I saw a couple of counsellors and and, uh, therapists along the way. And, you know, I I wasn't taking any medication. And, of course, I didn't realise at the time, what was going on. I just thought I was depressed. So yeah. when it came to light, I guess when I, after my dad died and I was having some really bad bouts of depression, I went to see my GP and I went to see a, a psychiatrist as well who asked me to to keep an eye on my mood. So basically to jot down
0: yeah, yeah. Um,
1: when I was feeling this way, when I was feeling that way, what triggered it and whatnot. And it became apparent that what I thought was just me in good form was actually hypomaniac, hypomania right. kind of yeah. phase. You know what I'm trying to say? But uh, yeah, so after a long time of, I suppose it was months of them testing certain medications and monitoring what was going on with me, they came back with a diagnosis of bipolar 2. So yeah, I guess, as I said, I never really took much notice of the highs because i just figured hey i'm in great form i've loads of energy i can yeah. i can paint the whole house i can i can <laughs> i can do everything and anything i'm invincible uh, i am woman <laughs> but uh, yeah i i didn't really notice as much because as i said i was focusing on those low moods um so yeah that's what they came back with and i guess that made total sense then when i looked back at, at what was going on with me over the years it made, it made total sense.
0: And I guess you wouldn't think that there was anything wrong really when you're in a good mood because, or a hyper mood because you're just feeling fantastic and you think, oh, I feel really good. I'm going to get a lot of stuff done. And then when you go and hit the the drop where you go into the downward spiral, you'd be thinking, oh, God, I must have overdid it a bit. But you, I, I don't see how you would have correlated that it could be something like bipolar.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess it's a tricky one to, to kind of – identify or to to pick up on and again i'm no expert daniel so i guess when i presented myself to the doctor i guess they're seeing something else that i'm not seeing i'm just going in spouting a lot of stuff at them and saying look i have a problem please help um and i guess it got to the point where once i crossed the 40 mark i said i don't want to be this uh, I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm on my way out or anything, but I didn't want to be this miserable old woman. I I wanted to get yeah. nip whatever it was in the bud before menopause kicked in and before, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I just I I just wanted to be happy, you know, and I needed things sorted out. So, yeah, I think I I did I did the best thing for me. And as I said, after a bit of trial and error, I'm on certain medications now that work really well for me and. I'm in a great place. I guess that's that's really one of the things I want to put across to people that there is there's medication there that you can take. There is help that you can avail of. It's not all doom and gloom. That there is light at the end of the tunnel. But that being said, I'm realistic. Like I, being honest with you, I'm not in a great place today. Yeah. And I guess you wouldn't know, but I'm well able to put on you know the the front, the face, and uh, and get on with it. I'm not in a, in a, in a desperate place, but since I suppose in the last couple of days, I've noticed a bit of a decline in my, in my mood. So I have to watch it and I, I know. I, don't, I still don't know what the triggers are, stress maybe. Um,
0: could it be but, that, because uh, last week when I spoke to you and said, would you be up for an interview last week, you said, I can't, I'm so busy this week. And do you think it could yeah. be that you've hit that peak of all your rehearsals and stuff, and then you're starting to come down from that, which is a natural come down?
1: Yeah, possibly. Like we have this, um, we have a big gig on Sunday. Um, it's a, a theatre in Nace, in Kildare, and it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a big deal because it's the first time that I've been on the stage properly with the band and doing my own stuff, but with the whole lockdown and stuff. Yeah. So I, I guess it's, it's nerves, it's stress, it's, and it's the condition as well. It's just a, yeah. probably a pileup of things. And last night when I felt pretty low, I said, you know what, you're going to have to do something now to, to help. Shake this off. Not that you can shake it off, but you know what I mean. I have to, so I'm like straight in the shower, and I'm like all the the lovely smelly moisturizers and the <laughs> <laughs> the face mask and everything. Do all the nice things and snuggle yeah. the snuggle the dogs and uh, all the things that kind of help ease the you know the the situation. But um yeah, I don't think I I don't think I'm set for a, a major dip in my mood, but I still recognise that there's something going on, so I have to mind myself.
0: And look, I I would think, as you say, you've been on the medication for about two or three years, you're still going to have peaks and troughs from settling into that medication. Because I mean, look, I I don't prescribe any medications to people. I'm a counsellor. But I I have found with people that are taking stuff for anxiety and depression, I think it's really up to, I would say, the six month mark before you really start to settle into that. And I think also on for you, because you're a performer, you have these natural highs where you're performing or recording. And then afterwards, it's sort of like, Dan, I'll I'll let you into a little secret. When I was in my 20s, I did a lot of amateur um, theatre stuff where I sang and danced and acted. And I would do Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Sunday still on the high. Monday I'd feel like crap. I'd just be like, oh, my God, I feel awful. But it's because you've like let all that energy out over those three nights and then you sort of come down from it. And it wasn't until I got to about Wednesday afternoon I started to pick up again and think, oh, I'm performing again tomorrow night. So I, I think with you, even though you've got bipolar, you would still have those natural peaks and troughs where now I guess you've got to get used to the fact that how they work because you've muddled through really without your diagnosis and being really high and then really low. And now it's just finding the happy medium.
1: Yeah, this is true. And the music business is great. Like I mean, it's in one way, in one way I think it, it plays havoc with your mood. As you say, yeah. if you're you're kind of wired or by the end of a gig you can't go to sleep and you're you're just sort of rattling. You have to I have to watch stuff like that because it, it can it can kind of interfere at times, but I think the worst thing in the world is going on stage when you're feeling low yeah. and nobody knows, and you yeah. have to put on that, that front. I I remember, what I'm not laughing at, at it, I'm just kind of laughing at myself, but one time um, on the way to a gig with my boyfriend, who's the guitar player in the band, and I just spent the duration of the drive sobbing my heart out, going, I, I don't know how I can do this, I can't. I can't get up there and sing. And as soon as I'm on the stage, it's like, ding,
0: <laughs> yeah. light
1: bulb on and off we go, you know. And again, forcing yourself to do certain things helps. I yeah. find that as well. Like I, I rarely wallow when I'm in a bad place. I force myself up. I force myself into the shower. I'm like, it's the simplest things. It's, it's washing yourself. It's brushing your teeth. These things can seem like monumental hurdles you know but yeah. get up and just go out and do something right fine you might feel like rubbish and you come home later and say okay well i didn't enjoy that or that you know whatever but it's better to try i think than than lay around and feel sorry for yourself i, I that's just my take and as i said i'm not an expert on this what works for one may not work for another but uh, i know there's a time and a place to wallow under the duvet but i tend to to push myself to do other things
0: Look, I sort of understand how you feel because I have chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and there are days or like Sunday morning I might wake up and I just can't get anything together and I just sit there blankly watching the news on the TV, on the couch, heater on, dog on my lap and I'm just sitting there going, oh, I really need to eat some breakfast and an hour could go by, two hours could go by. And I just sit there and think, oh, look, I'll do it in a minute. And I'm starving hungry, but it's almost like my brain can't process what I have to do next to go and get the cereal. When I do, then it kicks it off and then I'll be like, okay, well, maybe I'll have a shower now. I might spend another half an hour sitting there going, oh, yeah, I should have the shower. Yeah, no, I will have the shower. And then I'll have the shower and then I feel a bit better as well. But with fibromyalgia, I'm really lucky and I don't know if it's my mindset or that I do plenty of work and podcasts and stuff but for me I find find that if I take more than three days off in a row I'm going to start going back down that fibre fibromyalgia where I can't get out of bed I'm tired all the time and it's almost like my body says to me look we know what's wrong with you but we can get you through this but if you stop for too long we're going to stop as well because I had yeah. five days off recently probably three months ago By the fourth day, I was laying on the couch with the TV on asleep and I was sleeping all night and then I realised I'm going back into fibromyalgia and if I don't get up and start doing stuff and I don't do a lot, I should do more exercise, which I don't because I'm either working, podcasting, helping out with my mum, all these different things. But, yeah, I know I have to keep moving because when I keep moving and my brain's active, it feels like I'm keeping the fibromyalgia just outside the door. And that to some people might sound crazy, but to me, I can't be one of those people with fibro that lays in bed and gives up. You know, I have to, we've got one life, haven't we? So I can sort of understand where you're coming from because, yeah, I can feel like that. And it's just after four or five hours sitting there watching TV, just having breakfast, maybe a coffee, I'll go, this is ridiculous. I have to just do something.
1: Ultimately, Daniel, I think that's it. Yeah, exactly, that you're just... um you, you're not going to, you're not going to let, let whatever it is get the better of you. But no. I guess what we have to remember as well is we're only human. So sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down and, yeah. you know, there's no point in beating yourself up over it. So when the time comes that you do need to say, here, I'm, I'm on the couch now, just go with it. Don't let it yeah. o- like take over, but go with, go with it when you have to, you know?
0: Like uh, friends will say to me, oh, do you want to go here or there? Or-? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when I get to the weekend and I've actually got two days off, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to have a rest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How did but, you um, fare out with lockdown then? Did you... Um- did you lie around a lot? Look, lockdown oh, yeah.
0: for me, I still worked because I'm an essential worker. Um, I yeah. still recorded podcasts and I myself and my sister still helped out with my mum, who's in her 80s with Parkinson's. But I think if I was one of those people who couldn't work during lockdown, it would have driven me crazy because I don't think I I, I think I would have overthought everything. And when it first started last year, I think we were all sort of in two minds of, is this real? Is it fake? Yeah, you know, yeah. and then after a while you go, no, it's real. Oh, my God, this is real. This is what we're really living in. And then you start to come out of a lockdown and you start to think, oh, good, this is good. It's it's going to be behind us. And then another lockdown comes and you go, oh, no, this will be the last one. They say second wave. So you get through the second wave, starting to get your life back together. Third third lockdown. Oh, what's going on? And then we've just finished our fifth lockdown now in Australia.
1: I've lost crack. And- I've lost crack. I just kind of. <laughs> It's, it's just insane I think that if If somebody told you A couple of years ago That this was going to happen You would have thought They were off their trolley you really No would one would believed. believe it
0: Would they No one in their wildest dreams Would believe That in this day and age We'd be locked down For over 12 months
1: Yeah I can't believe They, they managed to keep Irish people out of pubs I still can't believe that <laughs> why did not we just open up all the pubs and just go and just say look no this isn't happening i'll sit in my little corner over there you sit in yours and just <laughs> let me have my wine
0: <laughs> so ireland's fared quite well through it haven't they well i don't know
1: about that um yeah look it's it's just it's been weird it's been it's been weird i think we've we've done all that we could do and it's got to the point now where a lot of people are protesting and they're sick right. of it and you can understand that as well but I don't really think that that's the best thing to be doing is gathering in crowds in yeah. city centre and, you know, protesting this, that and the other. I think just lay low and keep your distance until it's safe to, to do otherwise. That's just my opinion. But,
0: you know, each to their own. That that's an important question because you're an entertainer. How have you managed to survive? And I don't want you to tell me, oh, I had to do this or that, but, you know, because you couldn't work for so long. did you? Is this when you recorded your album because you're in lockdown or, you know, how, how uh, do you re- survive when everything's sharp?
1: Yeah, we recorded that. Uh, so some of it was done in Nashville, like in recent years, and I kind of pulled a couple of tracks from, from the last album, for like onto this one, but uh, we started recording before, everything locked down. And then when there was a little bit of let up somewhere in between, we got back into the studio again, but like, we weren't working, you know, my, uh, other half Gordon, as I said, hung up his guitar on the 13th of March, um, last year. And really we've had very few gigs. Like we, we've been lucky enough because we can downsize and we can do a two piece act.
0: Ah, yeah, so yeah. we've been
1: able to go through like small weddings, weddings of 25 and 50 and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, where you know it's at the hotel's discretion as to yeah. whether there's there's music allowed. Um. So yeah, but I mean you wouldn't you wouldn't be relying on it to pay the bills, you know. So it's been it's been it's been tough. Um. Yeah, we've been getting um like a pandemic payment. Okay. But it's not. Yeah, it's not really going to. Um, <laughs> it's not the same as going out and working three four nights a week. No. But, you know it's it's it, it doesn't match in any way shape or form but look um everybody's in or most people are in the same boat so I can't I'm not complaining about it when we were locked down I just got on with it I I shut the doors I I spent the first two weeks carrying on like it was Christmas right. and the <laughs> tv was on and I was stuffing my face and like everyone else probably put on about half a stone um and then I just copped onto myself and got out did my exercise and you know Red and just, I took a massive break, Daniel, I guess, as well. I enjoyed i enjoyed the time off because it was so alien to us. We didn't know what it was like to have weekends off,
0: to yeah. not have
1: to go anywhere, to not have somebody come to the door. In one way, like because I'm decidedly antisocial, it was great because <laughs> I thought, well, I can go around in my pyjamas all day and no one's going to come <laughs> to the door. I'm <laughs> a typical Irish person. I'm like, I can start drinking at one o'clock in the day. <laughs> Every day is a party now, um, but yeah, you like you cop on. And you don't that that didn't happen every day, <laughs> realistically. <laughs> only only some days, um, but yeah, like and I have the the animals here to look after. So that was that was lovely to spend time at home with my pets.
0: Yeah, look, I must still admit like that I, I did still work pretty much full time, but the extra time I did have at home on weekends with a dog was just brilliant, just laying on the couch, watching TV, going for a walk. Yeah, it was, it was nice to think I don't have to go anywhere because I can't go anywhere. Yeah. You know, otherwise exactly. it's that feeling of, oh, you know, I should catch up with so-and-so or I should go and visit this person or whereas when you're in lockdown, you can't do any of that. So you just get used to, well, I'm just going to laze around and do nothing. I
1: enjoy my own company. I like being on my own, so that's fine. And Gordon, my other half, as I said, is very easy going and good crack. So it was nice to spend time together. And we'd occasionally get the guitar out and upload a video here and there uh, to Facebook just to check in with people. But um, yeah, we definitely definitely laid low that period of time. And I think it was in one way healthy. The reboot was was kind of necessary. We just didn't realise we maybe needed such a break. Yeah, maybe not as long a break, mind you. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> so going through that lockdown, um, because you would have only been diagnosed and known about your bipolar for probably a year and a half before. When we hit that, and you started getting probably over the bits of lockdown where it was really happy and fun. Did you did you have any areas of that where you just went? my God, like, what did it feel like it was bringing back the bipolar or had you already got it under control by then? Uh,
1: I had a good grasp on it, I guess, at that point. But um mm. I guess there were some days, and like everybody else, where you were just live, living meal to meal. I'd be yeah. sitting there having breakfast going, what am I going to make for lunch? Having lunch, what am I going to make for dinner? <laughs> like, you know, that we were all going a bit stir crazy yeah. at times. So I, I don't think, no, I, I don't think that... The, being bipolar thing actually made any difference That's good. to me, and if anything, I probably just got had had a bit more time to to just switch off and be in my own head, which sometimes isn't a bad thing. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm I'm in a good a good place, and it was it was okay. Then it was, it made it more bearable.
0: Yeah, look, I had a guy on here a few weeks ago called Jerry, who was a, an international DJ in the nineties, two thousands up to about 2010, he still puts stuff out now and remixes. And he was saying about how he found out he was bipolar. And he said, I went from being an international DJ, to still DJing, but you know, some of your friends you spoke to were like, Oh, okay. Uh, I don't have time to catch up today. Um, and he, he felt like a few of his friends sort of disowned him. But in another way, he said, I found a new respect from other people that realized that, yes, I have bipolar, but I'm still a normal person. I'm still a DJ. I'm still a lot of fun. And it doesn't really change who I am inside. I, in, in, if anything, it just made his moods more uh, on the level rather than really high and really low. And now he's become a neurolinguistic programmer um, and does his DJ work. But talking to him and he spoke about the bipolar, he said he went in to see a doctor who said, Jerry, you need to get off the drugs first. If you get off the drugs, come back and see me and we'll see where we go from there. And he said he went for six weeks, no drugs. They retested him. They put him on some medication. And he said, Dan, it was the best thing. And I think like you're saying, you know, once you get a diagnosis and you get the right medication, it can change your life for the better. Whereas I think a lot of people live in fear of what if the medication doesn't work or it's the wrong one for me. But who knows? It might be that you have to trial a couple of different medications before you find the one that fits you. But if you don't try any of them, then you're going to still be in the same position you were in when you got diagnosed. You know of what course, I
1: mean? and there's a stigma, Daniel, as well, as I'm sure you know. There tends to be a stigma linked to antidepressants, and when you're talking about that that lad and him feeling maybe alienated from certain people, I I notice there are some people that don't know how to talk to me about this, yeah. so I don't talk to them about it. And again, there was other people that um, that approached me and said, "I think it's brilliant that you're talking about it because." You know, you might help one person. You might help ten people. You, you've shone a light on on mental health issues. Um, you know, it, isn't it funny that sometimes people can feel decidedly awkward around you when you when you say that there's something like this going on and that you're having to take or the big one, antipsychotics. You know,
0: yeah, God,
1: yeah. you must be a threat. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. And look, the I, the I don't going. think I don't think TV shows really. Um, give people with a mental illness the right stigma because I think usually you find the person who has been a serial killer in your favourite TV show has got schizophrenia or bipolar or something like that. So in most people's minds, that's what they lock in as the image and the stereotype. This is what bipolar person is. This is what schizophrenia person is. This is what they do to people. And if you you were to stand every person in a row with bipolar – I think you'd be hard pressed in reality, in real life, to find one person in that row who's a serial killer, you know, but they've seen it in a TV show. So immediately they lock yeah. on, ah, oh, serial killer. Oh, I've got to stay away from that person or I've got to, you know, talk to them really calmly in case they attack me. But a lot of this stuff is just what we've been taught by watching TV shows and movies And in reality, that's not what someone with bipolar, depression, anxiety, and I try to say to people with anxiety when they go, oh, my friend's got anxiety. I go, do you know what? Everybody on this planet has some form of anxiety. Oh, I don't. And I go, yes, you do, because we have social anxiety. So it might be if you go to meet someone at a cafe and you get there a bit early and you go, oh, I'll wait outside until they get here that's a form of anxiety because you don't want to go in because you don't want people to look at you. You don't know how you'll feel when you're ordering your coffee and and you're sitting there on your own and the waiter might be looking at you like, oh, well, why are you on your own? You've got two chairs here. You know, we can construct all these different things in our head that cause anxiety, but everybody on the planet has some form of anxiety. And yet we still look at mental illness or uh, mental health, mental wellness as a stigma that, you know, It's sort of looked on as, look, I think we're turning a corner where there are a lot more people and uh, who actually understand or are more compassionate or empathetic and don't just rush into that, oh, this is what they are. But while we still portray people with a mental illness as a serial killer or someone who's a bit crazy living down the street, we're never going to get away from that and realise that people with a mental illness are normal people.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not really normal, but...
0: (laughs) Well, nor am I, you know, Uh, and and I think think it's good if we're not normal because no one's actually even normal, are we? I mean, look, I could go on this whole rant about normalisation and how we go, oh, well, we should be like these people. You shouldn't be like anyone. You should be like you. And as long as you're like you, that's all that matters. And mental illnesses, I mean, you look at some of the people who work in Silicon Valley, uh, like Mark Zuckerberg, who does Facebook, we'd have no Facebook without him. And I think he's got some sort of autism or Asperger's. But a lot of programmers on computers have got autism or Asperger's. And they can sit there for hours putting all those programs in. What would we do if we didn't have these people? But people always think, oh, the autistic person is the person standing down there who's jumping up and down making noises. Well, unfortunately for that person, that's where they are. But we can still work with those people and we can give them a hugely different life. But then again, you know, it's a matter of, Just going, look, we've all got our our problems, our issues, but if we can see past those and see the person before we see whatever the label is that we have to stick on someone, we're a completely different world.
1: You see, yeah, you're right. We have turned a corner, Daniel. You're right that there's, you know, people are kind of speaking out more about it. People are trying to understand. I know here, like, I'm sick of people saying or using the term he suffers or she suffers with her nerves. Yeah, that's, that's something that people, people in Ireland generally say when they're talking about somebody who's depressed or who's whatever it might be, or the people that fell into the canal. You know, yeah. th- th- there's a lot of people, people don't like to talk about suicide. No, they don't like to talk about it here. It's like it's something else happened. They didn't, you know, eventually, maybe they talk out about it. But initially, it's like it was an accident. It didn't. It's sh- it's push hush. You know, yeah. um, so that doesn't really inspire people to turn around and say, look, I, I'm crying out for help. Yeah. If, if you think that everything like that has been swept under the carpet. So, where, as I said, we and have turned th- some sort of a corner. I think there's a lot more work to be done.
0: There is. I, I think like with things like suicide, um, sometimes it can be the family of the person who's completed suicide who feel like, they feel ashamed that they couldn't help that person. So they almost feel like, well, I can't talk about it because maybe it's my fault. Or, you know, as you are saying, you know, it could be the neighbours down the street who talk about, I don't know, Auntie Peggy who some di- uh, suicided and they go, oh, did you hear about Peggy's son suiciding? You know, it's like, oh, it, it should be more like how can we help Peggy because of what she's going through? You know, how can we support yeah. her? Not, be the, the um, gossip of the street. Yeah. yeah a- and I true. think sometimes also, though, those people who are gossiping don't really know how to go in and say, look, it's awful what's happened. What can I do to help you? It's almost like they feel, like, oh, God, I don't know how to speak to her. Well, she's the same woman you've known for 20 years. She's gone through a hugely tragic thing in her life, and all she needs you to do is go and say, do you want me to put a kettle on? Let's have a chat.
1: Yeah, as opposed to avoiding her like the plague.
0: Yeah. Or gossiping on the street or, you know, because I think a lot of mental illnesses over the next 20, 30, 100 years um, will become so commonplace that we don't even speak about them anymore. And I sort of feel that psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors will be a thing of the past because if we all share a little bit of information with each other, and so like with, with us talking, if you take a little bit of what I've said and you take that off and go with that, and I hear something you say and go, oh, actually, that's good. We've both learned something that could change what we, how we think and what our outlook on life is. And when we cause little changes in people, they then go and tell that to other people. Oh, look, I was listening to this or I saw this person or I spoke to this person. They said blah, blah, blah. And that actually really worked for me. What about you? And then they go away and go, oh, actually, no, that can work for me. You know, so if we're all spreading little tiny bits of information to each other that are positive and helpful and pushing down the stigma of mental illness to be, let's just talk about it. Who cares about it, you know? No one should feel afraid to speak about what's going on for their, for themselves because the more, say, so like you talk about it or someone else with depression, the more people will rally around and go, okay, how can we help? What can we do? And if you go, oh, look, I just need a week on my own, okay, cool, but we're here when you need us, you know, rather than yeah. going, oh, I was talking to so-and-so and she said she's got depression. You know, that doesn't help anyone. That's just gossip, whereas we can really help people by just talking and saying, look, I'm here. Talk to me about whatever you like. And that's one of the reasons yeah. I started this. I wanted to start a conversation where, you know, this this podcast with you and I will go out and it might be a, a mum who listens to it and goes, oh, actually my son's got bipolar or I think my son's got bipolar or he does have bipolar and listening to this lady speak, it actually made me think differently about my son. If we can get these sort of things out where people are just listening and they're not really going, oh, no, I need to tune into this bipolar broadcast, but they're just listening to two people chat, it really opens it up for conversation for everyone.
1: But this is it, yeah, and that's why I speak out as often as I can now, Daniel. Um, I was delighted to take part in this podcast because anything that I can do, as I said, to just um, put it out there and, as you said, whether it's the person suffering from Uh, a mental illness or a family member that thinks, hang on, I need to try and get help, or I need to listen, or I need to come at this from a different angle. I think the the greatest thing you can do is be open about these things. Yeah. Because it's when things aren't discussed and people are left to their own devices that, you know, it can go very wrong. You know, like, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there whose family members, you know, if they've committed suicide, that they didn't see it coming. They didn't know, maybe they had no clue as to what was going on in that person's head. And, you know, like I've been at times I would have described myself as being a master of disguise. So I would have, um, I would have kept things quiet yeah. for, for a long time, for a lot of my life. I mean, I had um, tried to take my own life on two occasions and thankfully I did not succeed. <laughs> but maybe if I had been quicker to turn around and say to somebody, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm drowning here, I'm, I can't cope, this is where I'm at. What if I walked up to the door of a hospital and said, I, "I'm I'm not able. I need I need some help." I didn't, I, I didn't have the strength. I wasn't in the mindset at the time to to, to open up to anybody. Yeah. So, um, and I guess I'm one of the lucky ones now that I'm that I'm here and I'm able to to speak about it. Um, so that's what I urge people to do. If you see something in a family member, don't let it slide. You know, it could be too late.
0: Yeah, what could seem like a difficult conversation at the time could be the conversation that saves someone's life or gets them the right treatment, you know. So it might not be an uncomfortable conversation where you say, is there anything wrong? And they go, well, actually there is, but I don't want to talk about it. Just go with it because you could be saving someone's life. You could be getting them out of depression, out of anxiety. They might need some medication for mental health issues. You know, getting the help early and learning from your experience is a great thing because you've told us what has happened to you and these people then can go, ah, actually, let's nip it in the bud now and they can get the treatment a lot earlier. So, yeah. you know, you're, you're really brave to talk about it and it's really good that you do talk about it because being a musician, you've got a platform that you can stand on and talk about these things and help people out.
1: Yeah, there's also the concern, I suppose, as well, going back to the stigma that people might judge me but you know what? That's a that's a, a risk I'm willing to take.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah.
1: as in by putting it out there again, it's like, oh, okay, right. We knew there was something going on with her, <laughs> um, and now she's confirming it. But um, no, no, I think all in all, it's better to it's better to speak out than, than I hide my truth. Plus, I'm too long in the tooth now, Daniel. i oh, you are not. You're a lot younger <laughs> than me. I'm 43, and I don't I just don't have time for for. Baloney anymore, you know. I just I speak my truth now, and if you don't like it, jog on.
0: <laughs> That's exactly, it. and and look, people who judge other people really don't have enough going on in their life, do they? Because who needs to pass judgment on someone who's actually making a difference and turning their life around?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: You know, you've got the help. You're you're speaking out about it to help other people. Anyone who comments on that needs to jog on, as you say, because. And look, I think in the next few years, we are going to get a lot more people opening up about mental health and talking about it. We've had some really big stars who have come out and spoken about it. Jim Carrey, for one, who sticks in my mind. And it's really good that they can come out and talk about it because then that allows all those followers who follow him to go, actually, there's nothing wrong with me. I just need to go and see a doctor and then I'll feel a lot better. So the more people that speak about it, we just get rid of the stigma completely.
1: It's funny that you should mention his name because I'm obsessed with Jim Carrey. I, How I'm are like you? The biggest fan. And I know this is going to sound really nerdy of me, but I have seen Dumb and Dumber over 500 times. I kid you not. I like,
0: I just, I'm obsessed. I'm a
1: woman obsessed.
0: Yeah. yeah, look, uh, Arlene. I
1: man if he ever runs into me. <laughs> I,
0: I would say, um, you know, uh, you said before that you don't care now if anyone knows that you've got bipolar, but I, I think telling people that you've seen Dumb uh, Dumber, Dumber five hundred <laughs> times, that might be something you don't want, to, don't want to use.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't care. I told you, <laughs> I don't care anymore. Um, my undying love for Jim Carrey is just—it's out there now. It's in the but- world.
0: Look, it's, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you're doing so well and, uh, having your mental health issue, which is bipolar and being like a jobbing uh, musician, because when you're a musician, you're still, you've got to do the next album. So you're working for yourself. So it's a lot more stress than if you were just working in an office or I guess working as a nurse, you know, a job that you turned up to every day and you knew you had your job, you've still got to be creative all the time. So, you know, well done. You're doing really well. Thank you. I appreciate it, Daniel. And thanks so much for having me on because
1: um you know it's I've listened to your podcast I think it's great Um, you have a lot of listeners and I'm I'm just delighted to be part of the podcast and
0: the show so thank you beautiful well thank you so much it was really good I'll speak to you hopefully again down the track and maybe have you on to do some singing yeah why not
1: yeah you can dance in the background
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you Bye-bye. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other and thanks for listening.